hear, for this is the word of the Lord. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Thanks be to God for his holy word. The text in front of us today begins with judgment. It was the sixth hour or 12 p.m. noontime as Jesus was hanging on the cross. And for three hours, there was darkness over the whole land. It was the middle of the day when the sun would be the brightest. So this wasn't just a solar eclipse that lasts only a few minutes. Now darkness is known throughout the scripture to be a sign of God's judgment. And this darkness over the land is reminiscent of the judgment that God brought upon Egypt right before he struck down the firstborn sons in the land. Darkness preceded the final plague. And only those who were protected by the shed blood of the Passover lamb would be saved in the Exodus. Now we see these themes in Exodus throughout the Gospel of Mark, and I would add, throughout the entire Old Testament. Especially when you come to Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. There you'll find the prophecy of the new Exodus. And who is to lead God's people in this new Exodus? Isaiah introduces the suffering servant. What we have in the suffering servant of Isaiah is the repetition of Israel's exodus out of Egypt. He becomes the final Passover sacrifice, the final Passover lamb that secures Israel's final exodus. That is our exodus from this world. This is what Mark is trying to communicate here. So here, this darkness is the New Testament fulfillment of the ninth plague against Egypt in the Exodus, right before the final plague. God sent darkness over the whole land of Egypt for three days, right before he sends his final judgment on the firstborn sons. But this time, the darkness would only last for three hours, and the judgment of the final plague will fall upon the firstborn son and the only begotten son, the only beloved son of God on the cross. We see the judgment of God was being poured out on his beloved son on the cross for his enemies. So his enemies would not suffer the final plague, but his only son. Paul says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death Of his son. This darkness was also prophesied in Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 10. And it is in direct connection with this day of judgment, as it says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for an only son. That is, morning 
for his only son. So for three hours, it was dark. And it was at the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon, there was a loud cry coming from the Son of Man, the King of Jews, on the cross. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This would have sent shockwaves to those who were watching. Uh, But the bystanders misunderstood what he said and thought he was calling for Elijah. Now, the reason why they thought this was that many were blinded by superstition. This exists in many Christian circles even today. There was a superstitious belief among some of the Jews that Elijah was the patron saint of sufferers and that he hears their prayers. They had other patron saints, uh, such as Abraham. Uh, We see this in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. When they both died, uh, the rich man, who represents the Jewish leadership, specifically the high priest, he was calling on Abraham to help him instead of God to be his help. But here, Jesus doesn't call on Elijah to be his help, but he calls on his God. And so to keep Jesus awake, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So they weren't giving him wine to drink out of charity or pity, but because they wanted to keep him alive just enough to see what would happen next. It was just plain old theater to them. And I bet they didn't expect what would happen next. Jesus uttered a loud cry. And breathed his last. At three o'clock in the afternoon, he died. The shock would have been that this dying man had the energy to cry out because usually men on the cross would dwindle down to nothing and would barely have the breath to cry out. You would either die slowly from the wounds or you would die from suffocation. This didn't sound like a man who was dying from being suffocated. And most men would last up to three days on the cross, while he only lasted for six hours. Now, many wonder what he cried out in his final cry to his father. In John's account, we read that his last words were, It is finished, meaning his atoning work on the cross was finished. The sins of his people have been removed. Then in Luke's account, we read his last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So his last words or his final cry were most likely a combination of both these sayings. And he died quickly, unlike the other two criminals hanging with him. He must have stopped pushing up with his legs because that was the only way you could get a breath as you hung on the cross. Now, because it was the eve of the Sabbath and to leave someone hanging on a cross overnight was forbidden, according to Deuteronomy chapter 21, because he was considered a curse and he would defile the land, the Jews asked Pilate to break the legs of the men on the cross so that they would die quickly. The soldiers would break the legs of the other two criminals. But when they noticed Jesus was already dead, and to make sure, they pierced his side and out came blood and water. This would fulfill Psalm 34, verse 20, that the righteous keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. 
And it fulfills the fact that he is indeed the Passover lamb, since it was commanded that during the Passover, that the lamb's bones were not to be broken. But what we see here in his final three hours was the forsaken son of God. So what we should seek to answer is, how was he forsaken? What was the nature of his forsakenness? See, to forsake someone is to abandon or desert that person. In this moment, for three hours of darkness, God forsook his son. But what does that mean? Let us first consider what it doesn't mean. First, it doesn't mean that God withdrew his presence from him. That is impossible. God is not only present everywhere, but also the Father cannot be separated from the Son. This leads to the next point. Secondly, to answer the question, does it mean that for three hours he was no longer the divine Son of God? No, because you cannot separate his two natures, divine and human. Though they are distinct, yet in all of his works, from his birth to his life of humiliation, to his suffering, to his death, and to his exaltation, he is all along that way one person. Both natures, divine and human. They both play distinct roles in all of his life and ministry, yet you cannot separate the two natures. Even as he hung on the cross, he was still both human as well as divine. Though his divine nature cannot suffer nor die, his human nature was suffering and dies. And only his human nature was forsaken by God. His two natures cannot be separated. Thirdly, it doesn't mean that God withdrew his love completely from Christ. No, that is also impossible. God cannot cease to love Christ. We find that on two occasions, God the Father spoke, and on both occasions, He says, This is my beloved Son. Fourthly, it doesn't mean that God was no longer supporting Him, or that God was no longer His strength. That would contradict prophecy in Scripture. Isaiah 42, verse 1 says, as He introduces the suffering servant, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. And fifthly, some may ask, does this mean that for a moment, Christ is somehow unholy in his human nature? No, that cannot be, or he would not be a sufficient sacrifice. So with all that out of the way, what does it mean that Jesus was forsaken on the cross? Well, let us consider first the ironic blessing or benediction that you often hear at the end of service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is what Jesus was lacking for that moment of darkness. In the scriptures, for the Lord to make his face shine upon you or turn his face toward you is another way of saying that God shows you favor. So for God to turn his face Away or to remove his favor is equivalent to being forsaken by God. Listen to the psalmist. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. 
O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. To turn his face from Christ is equivalent to him forsaking Christ. And this is why Jesus cries out and asks his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your face from me? Why have you removed your favor from me? So when Jesus was forsaken, it was God removing his favor from him. It was God turning his face from him. As believers, there are times when we sense as if God has turned his face from us. We think of the psalmist and how throughout the psalms, he speaks of God turning his face from him when he was suffering. But the difference is that for believers, we will never be forsaken the way Christ was forsaken. And we will never be forsaken the way unbelievers are forsaken at judgment. Here, God is pouring out his wrath on his son. He doesn't pour out his wrath on Christians. If we sense we are being forsaken, it is always out of God's goodness and fatherly care. Everything he does is for our good, even when it doesn't feel like it or when we don't have all the answers. When believers feel as though they are forsaken, oftentimes it is because of sin and he is disciplining and correcting us as a father corrects his children, but not always. And it is never penal. It was not the same as what happens to Christ. This was penal. That is law court language for punishment. Meaning it was the ultimate punishment for sin. This is why we say we believe in the penal substitutionary atonement. Christ takes on the punishment that you and I deserve for sin. He takes our place as a substitute on the cross. So now we can better understand why this would have led Jesus to cry out loud. We can understand why Jesus was deeply sorrowful even to death in the garden of Gethsemane. Asking his father to remove this cup from him if possible. He was dreading the day when he would be forsaken by his father. See his human life reflected his divine eternal life. As the divine Son of God, He was in perfect face-to-face fellowship and communion with His Father from all eternity. And up to this point, as a man, in His human nature, He was in perfect communion and fellowship with His Father. He delighted in His Father, and His Father (laughs) delighted in Him. He was perfectly obedient to His Father, and so His Father always showed Him favor. God's face was always turned toward Jesus until the darkness came. John Flavel, uh, the 17th century Puritan, says this, There is no child who is so one with his father, no husband who is so one with his wife, no soul who is so one with its body as Jesus Christ and his father were one. So this was indeed the worst moment of his life. He never knew this feeling before. Not even when he was tempted in the wilderness. The feeling of being forsaken by his father. And all the while, he was truly innocent. 
He was in a pure relationship with God. If anyone had the right to ask God, why have you forsaken me? It would have been him first and foremost because in himself he did not deserve to be forsaken. But when we think of all of the times we have fallen short of the glory of God. When we think of our entire lives and how many days we have lived and how every day we have sinned against the holy God and how we have never felt what it is to be in a perfect relationship with God. We grew up in sin and misery and we are the ones who deserve to be forsaken. Yet, we are not. And notice, he was completely forsaken. In this time when he needed the most comfort from his father, he didn't have it. On top of that, He was surrounded by his enemies and all of his friends had fled. He didn't even have his friends, his disciples, to comfort and encourage him. He was hanging there, completely forsaken by God and by the world. Listen to the psalm which he quotes. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Yet notice, Jesus still turns to his only support. So there are a couple of things to note before we consider what this forsaken son means for us. First, though he was forsaken, Christ never forsakes God his Father. We see his faith on display on the cross. See, this wasn't a moment of unbelief. This wasn't a moment of doubt. He wasn't doubting the goodness of God. He wasn't being a bratish child. Christ was not sinning when he called on his father and asked, Why have you forsaken me? Uh, Many who have tried to discredit the Bible or discredit Jesus' claims of divinity or his perfect humanity have claimed that Jesus was losing faith here. But actually, it was the exact opposite. This was an act of faith. No, it wasn't a triumphant faith. It wasn't a name it and claim it faith. I claim the strength of God. No, it wasn't that. It wasn't a worldly faith. But notice, he didn't get bitter. He didn't turn inwardly toward himself. He didn't curse God and die. He turned to God first by faith. Faithlessness and unbelief do not turn us to God. But it leads to turning to self. Believing that we have everything under control. This is why many people leave the church today. They're turning to self. In his human nature, he turns to God by faith. My God, my God. And he wasn't using the Lord's name in vain at that moment. It was a cry to God out of a deep and personal relationship with his father. He says, Eloi, Eloi. In its strict translation, he is calling on God in this way. He is saying, my God, my strength. My God, my strength. He began with doctrinal truths. He was identifying his God as the source of his strength. So he wasn't rejecting his father by calling on him. He was acknowledging his father and his power to save. Secondly, He was not forsaken forever. It was only for a moment. It lasted for three hours when there was darkness over the whole land. He uttered a loud cry and breathed 
his last. And in three days, he would rise again. Forty days after that, he would ascend to his throne, to the right hand of God, sharing in power and glory as he has always shared in his divine nature. But now as a man, he sits on his throne, communing with his father, interceding for us, and he will never be forsaken again. And this will apply to all those who have been called by him and united to him as well. So what does Christ being forsaken mean for us? First, he was forsaken for us. Again, think of how often we sin. And let us not think of sin as something small or something insignificant to God. Let us not look at sin and say, oh, everyone makes mistakes. Now, when we deal with one another, that is how we ought to think about sin as we are removing the logs out of our own eyes. But at this moment, think of sin from God's perspective. It is an offense to God deserving of death. We deserve to be forsaken by God. Sin is no small matter because it is against our Creator. And as often as we sin, we deserve to be forsaken, yet we are not. Instead, Jesus was forsaken for us. He was forsaken to make satisfaction for sin that we can never make. No matter the prayers, no matter how many times you've been to church, no matter how many times you have partaken of the sacrament, we can never make satisfaction for sin. But here Jesus repairs the wrongs we have done. He offers to God, His Father, the sacrifice of Himself in our place. He restored the broken relationship that we have with God because we are incapable in ourselves to make satisfaction for sins. Jesus made that satisfaction. We need a substitute. He becomes sin for us. He becomes a curse for us. Almighty God assumes flesh and becomes a curse for us. God removes His favor from His Son as if it was us hanging on the cross, receiving what we deserve. But instead, the one who did not deserve to be forsaken is forsaken for those who deserve to be forsaken. And after Jesus was forsaken for six hours on the cross, now we will never be forsaken for eternity. Also, secondly, when we sense we are forsaken, it is never the same. It is not the same as what Christ went through. And when the Christian is forsaken, it is to be considered a blessing, not a curse the way it was for Jesus. It is always a sanctified forsaking. And I put that in quotes. When the Christian senses that God has forsaken him, it is not God pouring out his wrath on him, but it is God purifying him. It is a mercy. It is a mercy to draw him closer to God as we drift from him, as we forget him, as we go through those droughts in our spiritual lives, as we begin to lose delight in him, as we lose delight in prayer and his ordinary means of grace in the gathering of the saints, he turns his face from us so that we may cling to him even more, so that we may turn to him and that he may turn to us. Because when we are sensing that we are forsaken, we can call upon Him. That is the third point. 
We can call upon him, for he is our strength. It is not a sin to ask God why. Crying out to God the way Christ cried out to God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is Christ-like. It is not a sin. It only becomes sin when we finally decide to forsake God. When we walk away from Christ. When we walk away from his church. When we walk away from the means that he chose to feed us. When we lose delight in him. And delight in the ordinances that he has provided. You know when you forsake God, when you can live without his word. You can live without the sacrament, without prayer, and without the gathering of the saints, and never sense a hunger for it. There are times as though we feel that God has forsaken us or that he has deserted us. This usually occurs when we are going through some kind of suffering. Whether it is illness or disease, could be persecution, or enemies are attacking us troubles in family life, or in the midst of insatiable or unquenchable temptation. But something I would like you to know is that when we suffer or when we feel as though He has forsaken us, it is not always because of our sin. It is not always because of sin. It could be, but it might not be. Remember, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore. When it was promised that when Israel was righteous, they would prosper, live long, healthy lives, and enter the promised land. But when they were not righteous, they will be judged in some physical way, whether with sickness, plague, or they will be invaded and conquered by other nations. We're not under that anymore. Jesus said that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now this is the difficulty of pastoral ministry or being a Christian who seeks to comfort others. Because one of the worst things you can do when you visit someone who is sick or going through a hard trial is to ask, now what did you do? Talk about the need for lessons in sensitivity. Because it may have nothing to do with their actions. For the Christian, our suffering, and when we sense we're forsaken, whether it is because of sin or not, has the same goal and end result. So it is best to focus on what is true right now in your present situation and what is true of the end result. First, what is the truth of your present situation? Remember Christ was forsaken so that you would never be truly forsaken. So even when you sense that he has forsaken you, he is there with you. He has not truly and eternally forsaken you. You are his child. And Christ has secured forgiveness on the cross. Cry out to him. Call on him. He'll never completely turn his face from you. Secondly, and in two parts, what is true of the end result? Whatever the suffering may be, it serves the same purpose. Whether you committed a sin or not. If you are a believer... Your suffering leads to Christ's likeness. Maybe he's teaching you to be patient. Maybe he's teaching you to endure suffering like Christ. As he hung suffering, forsaken on the cross, waiting for his father to save him and vindicate him three days later. And the second part is that the end result for the believer will lead to God. Just as God returned to Christ, he will return to us. He will shine his face 
and his countenance upon us. Jesus would soon be declared victorious when he rises from the grave and be glorified with his father forever in his favor. And that was in part to reassure us that God will return to us, raise us up to be with him, and we would also be soon victorious forever in his favor. So beloved, when you feel as though you are forsaken by God, Stick to Him in the dark moments. When we see that all the evidence that we are even His are gone, wait upon the Lord. Since Christ was forsaken, it secures the fact that you will never be truly forsaken. And we can rejoice in that truth as we now partake of the sacrament. Amen.